the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Thank you so much for joining us this Sunday evening. Uh, Tonight in our first two segments, we're going to be talking to uh, 7th Congressional District Candidate Max Miller, uh, who's with us to talk about what uh, is his background and how it applies to being a congressman. Big, big jump. Max, thank you for joining us tonight. Nick, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, Max, you're running for, for Congress, and um, tell us a little bit about why you're running for Congress and what has taken you in your background with the military and working in Washington to make this move to the Congress. Yeah, I, I'd like to answer your first question, Nick, and I'll tell you exactly why I'm running for Congress. In my time in Washington, D.C., and I was there with President Trump in the White House for four years, and I ended up as his senior advisor. But I was in these meetings. I was in these meetings with President Trump. I was in these meetings with these congressmen and senators and governors when they would come to town. And what I can tell you is this. For the vast majority of people who hold public office, they don't care about you, Nick. They don't care about me. They don't care about anyone else but themselves. And I have seen that play out time and time again. You know, And that is why... I moved back home, and now I'm running for Congress because we need a fighter. We cannot wait any longer to have people be filtered. We need to be unfiltered, and we need to move on and push on to end the radical liberalism that's taking over our country. Um, Now, going back, I enlisted in the Marine Corps, and I want to talk about this for a little bit. Oh, sure. I never forgot. Thank you for your service, by the way. Thank you for your support. I'll never forget where I was on 9-11. I'll never forget. I believe I was, I, was in, I was in sixth grade and my teacher, and he came in and he was unconsolable. And at that time, I didn't know what was really going on. But I remember that my mother picked my brother and I up from school, and she sat us down, and she put us in front of the TV, and she started to explain what was happening. And at a young age, I knew something was very wrong. But as I grew older, I knew that I was always going to serve my country and hold true to that commitment. So when I was 18 and I wanted to enlist... <laughs> My poor mother uh, got a little concerned, and, 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 and cut a deal with her, and I said, Mom, I'll go to college, and then I'm going in the military. And she probably thought, oh, Max will forget about it. I didn't. I followed through. As soon as I graduated from Cleveland State University, I went right down to enlist. I did not go the officer route, and I want people to know that because I wanted the same experience as everybody else. I'm no different. No one is. And that's how it should be viewed. And that's why I serve my country, to fight for everything that we believe in. And nothing has made me prouder than to wear the Marine Corps on my front and on my back for the rest of my life. And what that has taught me is that if you care about the person to your left, and if you care about the person to your right, more so than you care about yourself, Nick, then everyone gets home safe. And I'm going to apply that same type of common sense reasoning and logic when I go into Congress. We need to take care of our people, but we also need to coalesce to make sure that Republicans can win. Now, if I can, I'd like to share one story where I yeah, found please. myself in the West Bank um, 
Mm-hmm. So President Trump and his team sent me out to the West Bank. Uh, and I was in Israel, and he was doing a stop. It was his first foreign trip. Now, I was in the room in the West Bank. We went up there in up-armored vehicles. And, you know, the Palestinians probably had about 40 people or 50 people on their side, and we probably had about 20 or 25. And the chief of staff to Abbas, um, their president Abbas is not a president because they're not a country, they're just a territory, looked at me and said, you know, Mr. Miller, we would like to put the Palestinian flag on the president's vehicle. And I looked at her and I said, ma'am, that's not going to happen. And she said, why? And I told her why. Because the United States of America does not recognize the state of Palestine as a country, as a state, it is a territory, and as a terrorist territory at that. And she looked at me and she said, well, it looks like the president won't be coming. So I looked at her and I backed away from the table and I looked at my team. I said, ladies and gents, it's time to go. It looks like President Trump won't be coming here. And as soon as I did that, she brought me back to the table. No, 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 no. We want President Trump to come. Now, the reason why I tell you that story, it may sound small, but if I would have let the Palestinians put their flag on the president's vehicle, that would have given the optic to the world that we now recognize the state of Palestine. And what could have happened after that to the Israelis? And maybe a third instant father, who knows? But I tell that story because these were the situations that I was dealing with on a daily basis while working at the White House with President Trump. I have been battle tested. I'm not going to Washington, D.C. to you know, go to the cocktail parties and to hang out with the liberal elites and to make friends with the media. I mean, I think as everyone sees, the media loves to attack me, which means that I'm doing something right. They see a fighter. They see someone who's going to go ahead and inflict change in this country. And for a lot of people, you know, they always say, oh, I'm going to go to Washington and drain the swamp. You know what happens to those people, Nick? I've seen it firsthand, and I've mm-hmm. lived it. I've seen this. They go there, and they're like, I'm going to drain the swamp. And all of a sudden, they get co-opted by leadership. They get hundreds of thousands of dollars put on their desk. And before they even know it, they went there to drain the swamp, and now they're a part of it. And that's where we are today with the majority of our publicly elected officials. If we send the wrong person to Washington, D.C., as we did with Anthony Gonzalez, you know what you're going to get. This district, this state, this country needs a principled fighter who's been working with the leader of our party and President Donald J. Trump to go ahead and push his policies and never capitulate to the radical left. And anyone who knows me, they know that's exactly what I'm going to do, and that's my mission when I go to Congress, and that's to protect our conservative ideology and get rid of this nonsense of critical race theory and Title IX and boys and, and girls sports and girls playing boys sports. I mean, you know, we love the, the Democrats love to talk about science. There is no science in that. I mean, Apple you know, is a pregnant man. As a congressman, right, you, get into, you get into Washington and you're uh, there under all the influences that uh, affect all the congressmen. How, how do you resist the draw toward uh, – you know, the, the money issues where you have to raise money constantly uh, and you're going to be looking I'm, I'm, for favoritism and so forth. How, how do you handle that? How do you absolutely. resist? I'm, I'm proud to tell you this and I'm proud to tell everyone who's listening. I am my biggest donor. I don't listen to anybody but myself and my constituents and more so my constituents because I realize that I work for them and they don't work for me. And the last individual who had this seat, he didn't see it that way. And we know how things ended. But I can't be bought. No one can buy me off. No one can pay me off. I am my biggest donor to my own campaign, and I am very proud to say that. 
Well, one of the one of the things uh, I'm, I'm hearing in these stories are that you're a young man, which is great. We need young people involved uh, in in politics because it give you a, a long future to uh, to work in politics and continue to contribute. Uh, but what I like hearing is the fact that story about the West Bank. Uh, there's a lot of intimidation out there, both domestically and internationally. And to be able to stand up and think quick on your feet is is quite a, a good thing to do. How how did your superiors on, uh, in the White House react to your decision you made, and how you handled that? What, what kind of feedback did you get? They were thrilled. I, I can tell you that everyone in my chain of command was was more than thrilled with what I had said and because it's the absolute truth and I held the line and that was the line that I was told to hold and I will hold that same line for our constituents when I go to Washington C- Washington DC and fight for them um, but you know I say that because those were you're right I mean I have been exposed to this world I have been exposed to foreign leaders I mean I've been at the table with prime ministers presidents none of that rattles me it doesn't shake me I feel as if I'm ready for this moment. I mean, I, I was in Washington, D.C., and I helped drain the swamp with President Trump. Now I want to go back to finish the job, and I wasn't co-opted when I was there. I stayed with him to the very end, so much so that four U.S. Marshals decided to come to my home and deliver a subpoena for me for the January 6th committee. That is how dedicated I am to this movement and to the people who support it into our district. The... Uh What's going on with Ukraine and the Russians, and this being a problem well into next year and beyond, I am sure. Uh, how do you view what's going on there, and where do you think it's going? I view it as this is Joe Biden's fault, and I'd, lo- I'd love to tell you why. About two months ago, or two and a half months ago, Russia moved in on Ukraine. President Biden gave an address to the world, calling it a small incursion. That isn't an incursion. That's an invasion. And we sat back and did nothing. Biden didn't level them with sanctions. He didn't scare them. He didn't intimidate them. He didn't coalesce our allies to apply pressure. So he let Putin go ahead and take a measured, calculated approach. Putin went in. He went back. He waited another month. And then I think Putin said to himself, I can't believe that Joe Biden isn't doing anything, that he isn't leveling me with sanctions. And he's still buying 800,000 barrels of crude oil from us. So he's simultaneously financing our war. This all goes back to weak leadership. It's the same why, same reason why Iran struck our consulate in Erbil, Iraq. It's because they want to back Joe Biden into a corner to rejoin the JCPOA and the Iran deal, which will give Iran nuclear weapons and freeze up billions, well, sorry, not freeze, it'll unfreeze billions of dollars for them to go ahead and get a nuclear weapon. But just real quick, going back to Ukraine, This is all self-inflicted. Everything that we are seeing in the world today with foreign policy and domestically is Joe Biden's fault. Well, let's hold hold that thought for just a moment, Max. We're going to take a short break. Uh, You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate, and we're talking to Max Miller, candidate for 7th uh, Congressional District here in Ohio. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Nicholas with you with another segment of The Advocate. 
We're talking to U.S. Congressional candidate for the 7th Congressional District here in Ohio, Max Miller. Max, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Uh, The conversation has been great. Yeah, it's it's great, and time's going by way too quickly. There's a lot to say. Uh, We were talking about uh, Ukraine and and what has been happening, uh, especially with the Biden administration, since this is happening on President Biden's watch, uh, with... um, Congress coming up after this election, still under the uh, authority of President Biden. What can you do in Congress to change the direction of what's happening as far as the U.S. government uh, is handling things with Russia and Ukraine? Yeah, I think I know that Republicans are going to take back the House in a very strong majority. I also believe that we're going to take back the Senate. But I want to go through two scenarios. One, if we take back the House and we don't take back the Senate, you're going to need someone to block and tackle every dangerous Biden policy that's coming down the pipe that's going to hit congressional legislation. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. I will always stand firmly against any of these radical policies as they continue to pass. And ridiculous ones like that, like the Crown Act and things like that, when we have serious problems going on in our country. But I'm walking in to this with a team. I'm not going in alone. I've got friends, and Jim Jordan and Warren Davidson and all of these guys, uh, and my mentor, Mark Meadows, uh, who, I, who was the chief of staff at the White House, who, who you know, I worked very closely with. I'm going in with a team, and we're going to get things accomplished. Now, if we take back the Senate, I want to flip Roe v. Wade. That Dobbs case right now is hot, and I think the time right now is right to strike, and I think we can go ahead and focus on some of these things. But for the most part, and this is just a dose of reality, Nick, if we just uh-huh. take back the House and we don't take back the Senate and he's still going to be in the Oval, not much can be accomplished other than stifling his agenda to make sure he doesn't do any more dangerous policies that are going to continue to hurt Americans. I mean, right now we're at 8.5% 8, 8. inflation. That's not accurate. Joe Biden needs to go talk to the real people who live in our communities because they'll tell you that inflation is probably closer to 20% to them when they have to go out and gas and produce and everything else that's underneath and utilities and everything skyrocketing. Um, I mean, that's what we're seeing here. So, you know, if we don't take that back, that's how it's going to be handled. If we take back the Senate, then we rock and roll and we move, and we push as much stuff, and we try to overturn every piece of legislation and chip away at it. Well, when you you talk to the uh, real people in the state of Ohio, especially in the 7th District, uh, I'm sure you're hearing about the economic issues, the inflation issues, and so forth. Uh, how how uniform is that, and how strong of a Republican sentiment do you feel out there? Very strong. And here's the best part, Nick. It's not only the Republican sentiment. I'm seeing a lot of independent and Democrat sentiment to this as well. Every American, for the first time since probably 2007-2008, every American is being forced to pay attention to what's going on. And what I mean by that is every American who has a car, has to go fill up their car if they need gas. Every American who needs to go buy groceries at a grocery store knows that things are missing from their shelves and our supply chains are not where they need to be in backed up ports that have been for a few months now, as we've been talking about in our country. And all these things get shoved underneath the rug because the media will always cover up for Joe Biden. These are the things that we need to expose and go back to the old policy. If, if Joe Biden really wanted to provide the American people some relief, we have oil underneath our feet and off of our shores. And we can start being one of the largest oil producers in the entire world. But yet, he won't do it. 
He won't do it because he's systematically ripping the fabric of our Constitution into what he wants to see this country. And that's exactly what Barack Obama started. And my fear is that would that is what Joe Biden wants to finish. When when we talk about the primary election that's coming up soon, uh, and there's a number of candidates running in the South District, what do you want the people to know about you that you, you want to make sure they know? I want the people of the 7th District to know that I will always stand with them. I will never go against their will. I will always work for them day in and day out. I am giving a quarter of my salary back to the people of the 7th District. I believe it's roughly around thirty-five dollars to $40,000. That is their money that is rightfully going to be returned to our community to help with the opiate epidemic that we face and homeless veterans. And then, every, and then after those two organizations are taken care of, I am going to let the constituency get to decide where the money gets to go, where we need it the most. And I will never take a federal pension. I served in the Marine Corps for six years. I don't have a pension. I don't receive money. Yet, you get elected to Congress twice. You get a pension. You get benefits. This is what is so corrupt with our system. This is why people never want to leave Washington, D.C. And I've made that commitment. And I'm telling everyone in the 7th District, if you're looking for somebody who will always stand up for your values, who worked day in and day out with President Trump, Eric, he mentored me throughout this process, made me a senior advisor to him. I'm your guy. I am who you are looking for to take the fight to Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and to make sure these dangerous policies stop hurting the people, not only in the 7th District, not only within the state of Ohio, but within the entire country. You know, socialism has always been knocking at our door. It always has been, except now it's inside our homes and it's creeping in. And if we let them rest in our beds, we let them eat our food, we let them go and use our showers, our bathrooms, everything, we will lose this country. And Venezuela is a perfect example of that. Within about 10 to 15 years, that one of the highest GDPs in the world fell. If people in this country do not think that can't happen to us, they're wrong. And that's why I'm doing this. And that's why I'm fighting. And I will always be pro-life and stand up for that. I will always protect your Second Amendment. And I will always care about you, each and individually, about the single person that mm-hmm. I need and want to take care of. Assuming you win the primary and assuming you win the general election, how do you plan on staying in contact with the constituents in the district? How, how will you allocate your time between Washington and being back here in the Cleveland area? Well, two things. One, I want to push the limit on the first one. Cleveland is a five-hour drive to Washington, D.C., or a one-hour flight. That is it. I really want to see how much a congressman needs to be there. And I will be very honest with the constituency. But something I'm excited to tell you, and I love the question, I want to do an internship program in my office. I want the constituents of the 7th District, doesn't matter what age you are, if you want to come in to your congressman's office, you should have every right to do so. If you're in D.C. and you want, you want to come in, absolutely. But I want to bring people from our community to Washington, D.C., so they can see exactly what's going on and tell everyone back home what's going on. And I know I'll be doing that as a representative, but I want other people in our district to see it firsthand so they can explain and tell everyone what's going on, the good that we're doing in the office. But not only that, I want to show them the corruption that is all around us. And that it is a viper's nest. And if you let your guard down for one second in that environment, 
that'll be the end of you, and that's it. And I've seen it dozens and dozens of times, and Nick, I'm sure you've seen it as well. It's It's been a problem out there for decades and decades. Well, what is the most serious problem in the corruption area that you see, as you see it, and how would you attack that? The biggest thing is I believe that everyone who holds public office needs to put everything they have, any assets, into a blind trust. Because I've seen, and I, I, you know, I've seen people in these meetings, they talk about certain things, certain moves they're going to make, then all of a sudden they place an order for a buy, and then they make you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. That is corruption. These individuals really, for the most part, and they're not all bad, I just want to be clear, but some of them don't even come back home. They take it, you know, they take it all for granted because they have the name ID, right? They've already, you know, they bought it. They've been the income. Um, I'm going to you know, push the limits on all of it. It's going to be interesting uh, to set up a staff and everything because the a lot of people I don't know if they realize what a congressman has to do with regard to setting up offices and having a chief of staff and and having staff people actually do the functions that a congressman needs to do. It's not all glory. Uh, how are you planning on taking care of all of that? And we, we only have about a minute to go here. That's a big yeah, question look, for Nick, a minute. <laughs> so I'm sure you'll look, do fine. I'll make, it, but I'll, I'll make it very clear. I'm not in this for sound bites. I'm not in this to go on Fox News to scream my head off. I'm in this to do right with actual pieces of legislation that our constituents are going to see the benefit of. That is exactly what I'm going to do in Congress. You know, a lot of these people who run for office, they love to say bombastic things because they think they're, you know, President Trump or they'll use a lot of negative things because they think that'll help them. Unfortunately for them, what they, all of these people have yet to figure out is none of that works. There's only one Donald Trump, right? I wish I could mimic him. Uh, yeah, it'd be probably an easier ride than what we've experienced. But, you know, that being said, everything all together... Uh, I mean, that is where we need to be, um, and that Very is why I'm doing it, I mean, for my so. Well, I'm, I'm glad we were able to give you the opportunity to talk to uh, the voters out there tonight. So, Max Miller, thank you so very much for the 7th Congressional District here in Ohio. Thank you so much, Nick, and please vote Max Miller on May 3rd. Go to votemaxmiller.com, and God bless you all. And thank you again, Nick. There you go. Thank you very much, Max. And we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the next two segments, we're going to be talking to Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. And uh, we haven't talked to Kevin for a couple of months now because COVID seems to have been quieting down, I think. But Kevin's going to bring us up to date on what's going on with the Board of Health and COVID and any other issues that are out there. Kevin, thank you for joining us, as always. Certainly, Nick. Thank you for the invitation. You're, you're our safety net here in public health, so we appreciate so much. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, I just didn't. I just indicated what uh, my perception is of COVID, that uh, things are relaxing because COVID must be tamed and under control. Is that accurate, or what's the status? How many of these cases do we have, and should we still be worried? Well, uh, I don't know if worried is really the the right uh, way to portray it, but I think we should all you know, be aware that this is potentially a, a lull before a wave. Just be 
based on what we've heard described to us, um, that the uh, the BA2 uh, subvariant is uh, highly transmissible. Uh, but the good thing is uh, we've got a couple of mitigating factors. Uh, we've heard that uh, if people were infected with the, the BA1 version, the, Omic- the Omicron version, uh, you know, there is a degree of immunity there. Uh, people who have been boosted in the meantime, they have increased protection. Uh, we're heading into better weather. So just naturally, uh, we have mitigating circumstances for potential spread by people being outside, uh, opening windows, you know, and if they're congregating, uh, they're not always doing it indoors anymore. So, you know, we're, we're headed in a better direction, but I just think we need to be wary based on past history, uh, not to be fatalistic or to be doomsayers here as public health practitioners, but just to be, you know, wary of our history and uh, to say that we're not out of the woods yet, but we're all very encouraged by uh, what we're currently seeing. Now, now I heard through other sources that uh, the uh, not only Omicron, BA2, but COVID generally has been moving somewhat in roughly 90-day cycles for about a three-month period. We'll see the ebbs and flows of uh, a lot of cases and coming in as a wave and then decreasing until something else happens. Have you been seeing anything along those lines, at least of a cycle, maybe not exactly 90 days, but the ebbing and flowing of COVID as an issue? Certainly, because I think think that's that's a, a pretty accurate way to describe it. Uh, because, you know, we've seen, what have we seen here, Nick, in Cuyahoga County, five, six different waves, right, potentially, over, over the, the duration yes, of the, the two-plus years. So, you know, that's a, that's a good way to take a look at it. So, you know, if, if we're being mindful of that, you know, our big wave came at the end of December and into January. And then by February, you know, you, remarkably, right, we all thought our numbers were just, you know, decreasing very rapidly. So if we look at that three-month cycle, potentially, you know, we could be in the May-June area. Of, of looking at a potential wave. But, uh, you know, we've heard other local uh, health officials here uh, that work for the hospital system say it could be as long as fall. You know, we might have a good summer, and then as we all begin to congregate, the weather goes the other way, and we become more of uh, indoor inhabitants there as we get to the fall, we could see a wave then. So, you know, everybody's projecting at this point, but I think it's, it's healthy to be mindful of, uh, as I said, the history of where we've been over the last two-plus years. Always interested in statistics because it's counting the numbers of cases that uh, help us uh, realize what the reality is out there. But uh, knowing how many people are positive with COVID, with all the thousands of home test kits um, out there that are not being reported. So if, uh, what I've been hearing also is that with like the the BA uh, two variant is that it's not only highly infectious, but the symptoms are much milder, generally speaking, than the original COVID-19. Now, with that yes. that being said, if, if people are doing their home tests and they're positive, but they don't really have any symptoms that are any more severe than a sore throat or sniffles, uh, they're not getting reported. How How is the Board of Health estimating how widespread COVID infections are are existing around us. Is there any way to do that? Well, I think you know we we, we predominantly look at you know what the what the 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 cascade sort of from the CDC to ODH to the Department of Health as to what the trends are there nationally and at a state level, and then we interpret what's happening here locally. Um, and I, and I think there's certainly an element built into all three of those uh, surveillance models 
that account for, in, in some way, the underestimation of, of cases and, and infection and, you know, the positivity rate, as you mentioned. You know, um, we certainly aren't covering every potential area where there could be infection, and we certainly know that there's underreporting based on people, you know, the usage of home test kits and, the, as you say, the the minimization of symptoms, thankfully, with this with this last variant. So, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I think we, again, you know, that that builds into my earlier statements to say that we need to be mindful of where we are because just because, you know, we're seeing it on television and, and we're reporting good news currently doesn't mean that, you know, there is the potential for things to go the other way. So as, as much as we are, I think, mentally fatigued as as a nation, certainly, and as, and as a... Uh, as a global population with COVID-19, we certainly, you know, can't uh, can't say that we're done with the pandemic in a, in a literal or a scientific sense. I know we can't uh, really judge much based upon not getting the results from home tests that are not being reported out of the home. So we don't know how how much uh, COVID is out there, but we can tell from the hospitalizations. What can you tell us about the number of hospitalizations for COVID now? And uh, how much uh, of those cases that are hospitalized are made up by uh, the BA2 variant? Well, according to uh, some of the data trackers, there are a few out there. There's a CDC data tracker. Uh, there's one that the New York Times puts out. Um, what we see is hospitalizations have gone down considerably, uh, as have fatalities. Um, now, we've seen the number of cases increase, but as you say, from a symptomatic standpoint, they're not severe enough for people to require hospitalization as they were just as recently as three to four months ago. Um, and the positivity rate is relatively low right now. I mean, we're in, this, we're in the low single digits now, Nick, which is somewhat remarkable uh, compared to probably the last time we talked in February uh, and certainly when we talked in January. So, um, you know, everything's indicating that, it, that again, we're, we're going the right direction our incidence rate. Uh, we're now, uh, as recently as three to four weeks ago, we were in the 50s. So, mm-hmm. give or take, 53 cases per 100,000. So, that's a, that's a great improvement. And at that point, we were below the state average, which was closer to about 70 or 75. So, you know, all those indicators are positive right now. Well, that, uh, I, I think that the spirit and the uh, the general way people are acting is they're they're acting relaxed, uh, especially with the weather warming up and people getting to be outside more often, and with the incidence being lower. And even if you get it, uh, you're not going to have likely a serious bout of COVID. Although COVID is still a pretty unpredictable thing. Uh, what about our people who are over 50 or 60 and uh, have other comorbidities or co-conditions? Uh, what are they at risk under the new situation? Have you been seeing any of those cases? Are they still serious? Do we have deaths going on here in in Ohio or northern Ohio? We do. <clears throat> excuse me. We do have deaths that are, that are being posted in uh, in our county numbers, and some of those are also due to what we you and I have talked about several times is a lag in data reporting. So just because we're seeing our fatalities increase, uh, you know, on a week or two out of a given month now. Um, doesn't mean that, you know, that's the actual real-time fatality. That's still some of that data that's still catching up, presumably, from the past wave. So, um, you know, when we look at that, you know, we, um, <clears throat> you know, we think we're, we're, again, we're going in a better direction. Um, but for the, for the people, as you mentioned, who are 50 to 60 and older, 
we certainly recommend that booster. If you haven't gotten your first booster, um, certainly, you know, that's recommended. And as is the second now, um, I, I know if uh, you have a concern from a comorbidity standpoint or just, you know, if you're up there in years and, and your immunity is naturally uh, waning a bit, it's certainly a, a good time to consider a booster. I would say, you know, consider calling your doctor. Uh, and as we get to the uh, nicer weather, as you mentioned, travel is going to be a consideration. So if you're traveling, especially internationally, we highly recommend getting a booster. Well, we're going to talk more about boosters and masking uh, coming up here because uh, I, I think people on the one hand feel very relaxed, I think, uh, with regard to COVID. And other things are sort of taking up their interest and their attention. But uh, I know that COVID is still out there at some degree, so people need to know if they are at higher risk than, say, the normal 22-year-old who's perfectly healthy. Different people altogether. But we're going to take a short break. We'll hold those thoughts for a moment. We're talking to Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. He's the communication officer, giving us an update on COVID-19 here at the end of April 2022. Don't go away. We'll be right back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. with you for our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking to Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health about COVID-19 here at the end of April, early May 2022. And Kevin, as always, boy, you're such an informational source for us on COVID. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's good to be with you again. And now we're old friends after two and a half years of doing yes, this. Yes, we it's certainly amazing. are. Good grief. I thought this was only going to be like a six-week deal way back in 2020, but apparently not. Uh, That's right. We're now to our phase of people being vaccinated and having their first booster shot and people now being asked to get second booster shots. Uh, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, the people who should get their second booster shots are people who are at a higher risk for having complications if they get COVID. Uh, is, is that fairly accurate or would you like to add to that? No, I think that's an accurate statement. And and I think, that, you know, the way it was initially approached was people who were 50 and older, uh, just out of what you and I have talked about quite often is that natural waning of immunity as people get older. Um, but I think from a public health standpoint, the way we look at it, Nick, is anything that could, if you're immunocompromised or you have a chronic illness, anything that could potentially compromise your good health could be potentially dangerous. It could trigger something that may not be, you know, um, symptomatic enough, uh, I guess what I'm saying is with COVID, with symptoms being milder now with, with the new uh, subvariant, you know, it, it could, you can still get sick and then you could trigger some other illness that's present within you, which could then, you know, further your issues. So from a protective standpoint, much like a flu vaccine, the same, the same reason, you know, whether or not you become, you know, someone who unfortunately would maybe pass away from flu it's not always the initial consideration up front. It's what can, you know, what can you do to prevent that and what other illnesses do you have that could potentially be, you know, triggered by uh, the onset of something like COVID or like the flu. So we look at it as anything that's potentially harmful to your health, especially if you're an immunocompromised, we urge you to take all the precaution you can, which would include those COVID-19 boosters. For for right now, when we have the numbers of COVID, serious COVID cases down for the general population, 
you mentioned that people still are dying. We're still having COVID fatalities. How is COVID killing people currently? And is it killing them with uh, COVID pneumonia type situations we had earlier or the blood clotting in the lungs that we had earlier? Or is it basically uh, other comorbidities that are taking over and uh, basically killing people? What, what, what are the causes of death with that and how is it happening? Well, you know, I don't know that specifically um, because I, I don't have, uh, you know, sort of a, a hospital-level analysis. Uh, it's something I could certainly inquire of our medical director to get a, a further look at that. But um, what we do know, what has been consistent throughout the pandemic, has been that that collection or that um, the, the comorbidity issue, right? Somebody ends up in the hospital, um, you know, with something being triggered by COVID, by flu, um, and then, you know, unfortunately it can lead to death. Much like when we talk about flu, we talk about it can lead to pneumonia and, and other illnesses. So, um, you know, that's what I, I know to be true as we're continuing through. But to answer your question directly, I don't exactly know that from maybe the last 30 to 60 days. Well, well let's change topics just a little bit, a subtopic here to masking. Uh, now, there's always, throughout this whole pandemic, been controversy about masking, primarily mandatory masking. And there are so many different facets or ways of looking at the masking issue. Uh, from a medical standpoint, forgetting the politics involved and people's perception of what their constitutional rights are to deal with a, a, a pandemic, the idea of masking uh, I'll share my ideas, and you correct me or add to it, <laughs> because you're, you're my my big uh, corrector here. And, and that is, uh, masking is not a cure all for everything. Uh, but some of the basics are, if you are ill yourself, if you are shedding viruses, if you are contaminating people, wearing a mask will sort of cut down on that contamination you as a sick person will be doing. Is, is that still fairly accurate? <clears throat> it is. And I think the way to maybe characterize it, Nick, is it's a preventive measure. Uh, you recall when we first started conversing about uh, about COVID prior to the uh, introduction of vaccines, we talked about non-pharmaceutical interventions or NPIs, strategies for mitigation, and, and masking has been proven to be an effective measure, uh, you know, to reduce the spread. Um, you know, and, and when we talk about this, it's much like I think people had a view of vaccination as an ironclad absolute prevention method. If I get the vaccine, there's no way I'm going to get sick and there's no way I can spread that, uh, spread COVID any longer. And, and neither one of those are true, but they're both, um, you know, or vaccines and masks are both preventive measures to guarantee your health to the greatest extent possible. So, you know, from a medical standpoint, as you say, not entering into politics or emotions or anything, it's the most logical thing to do to do what you can to protect yourself, which would include wearing a mask and, and getting a vaccine. Well, I look at two types of people who wear a mask, uh, dividing the population into at least uh, you know, two sections. One would be people who uh, are infected, either with symptoms or without symptoms. Probably the easiest people to know that they are possibly infected are those with symptoms. Runny nose, fever, cough, and, and achy bones and fatigue, that kind of thing. Uh, they should be pretty self-suspect about spreading whatever they have. 
myself, I ended up with a sore throat coming back on a trip. And so I'm uh, basically very concerned. I don't want to get anyone else involved with a sore throat. So the question comes up, well, what, what do I have? So I went on, I got tested for strep and got tested for COVID. Both were negative, but uh, there's still other things going around. If you get a sore throat, it doesn't mean you have COVID. But the thought is you can still spread things around to people, so you should still wear a mask and stay away from people if you're not feeling well as good practice. But what about the other half of the people who are absolutely healthy and they're, they're not walking around without wearing a mask at this point? Are there situations where they should wear a mask? I certainly think so, um, because one 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 thing that we can use as sort of an evidence base for this have been the flu numbers the last two years. They've been incredibly low, some of the lowest we've ever seen, because people were, were masking in most environments, if not some people in all environments, depending on what their daily life was. So, you know, we know that masking is effective. So what we would recommend certainly is in any place where people are congregated. And I think now, as we mentioned earlier, that people can go outside. We really look at indoor crowds, right? So if we're all, just for instance, if we're all inside a church and, and the windows are not open or the doors are not open or, you know, we're all inside of a school, again, and school masking has become, you know, quite contentious as we've talked about many times. So from a public health perspective, the more people that congregate in closed quarters, the more potential there is for spread. Um, you know, but thankfully, as we say, with the good weather, maybe we're going to be able to save this off for a while. Well, to make a political comment about masking, even though many mask requirements are being relaxed at this point, uh, if you feel that you are compromised or you feel that you are more vulnerable to uh, having a serious bout with covid it's okay to wear a mask in public, and uh, you should do that if, if you feel more comfortable doing that. Even though you're not required, it's a matter of choice, and that would be a good thing to do. Uh, talking about COVID and hospitalizations, we are, are going down uh, in numbers of hospitalizations, and, and hopefully that should continue. Do you think that's going to continue on for the summer because of the warmer weather and the, the outdoor activities uh, taking a lead? Well, I certainly hope so, um, you know, and as long as we don't have the the introduction of another, you know, um, sub-variant that's being, you know, deemed potentially dangerous, uh, you know, by the medical community. But, um, you know, we're, we're looking good so far. And as I look at the positivity rate, uh, just to go back to that one more time, as recently as yesterday, uh, it was approximately 3% in our county. So that... Uh, that's Very low. Probably one of the lowest that you and I have, have talked about over the course of our conversations. So, yeah. uh, you know, oh, we're, we're in a good that. time. Yeah, so we're in a good time, you know, a uh, good time of the year. And uh, we'll we'll just keep trying to do the best we can here. But, you know, if you're flying, if, you know, when we go back to, to places to wear masks, that's one thing I wanted to mention is if you're flying or you're on a bus or you're going somewhere, you certainly want to consider a mask in, in those instances, too, because you're spending prolonged periods of time with people uh, in, in, in very close quarters. So, you know, as, as we mentioned, travel, recommend the mask, recommend we'll the have to, We'll have to do that. Well, on, on that note, let's um, be safe and hope that things continue to get better. So, uh, Kevin Brennan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for listening tonight. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great, healthy, safe week.
we'll see you next week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to do until morning And only my mind for company Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.